Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey everyone, this is Amit Goyal. Welcome back to a Cardiac Case Report. We are at MedStar Georgetown University with medicine resident Dr. Ethan Frazier and cardiology fellow Dr. Austin Culver. Ethan and Austin, it is such a pleasure to have you join us on Cardiac for the first time and hopefully not the last time, but please introduce yourself to the audience. All right, Dr. Goyal, lovely to be here. My name is Ethan Frazier. I'm a third year medicine resident at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. Born and raised in San Francisco and went to college in St. Louis at Washington University. Then, luckily enough, moved out to D.C. afterward for med school at Georgetown and have stayed since. Next year, I'll be going on to critical care fellowship at the NIH. So looking forward to a career in uh, critical care cardiology in the future. So very honored to be here. Um, and thank you so much for having both of us. I'm Austin Culver. I'm one of the chief cardiology fellows at MedStar Georgetown. Very privileged to be nearly completing my cardiology training this year and third year of fellowship. Next year, I'll be doing critical cure super fellowship also at Metster Washington Hospital Center. Really honored to be able to continue to work with my mentors and attendings there. My background is originally from Chicago, Illinois. Did all of my training at the Northwestern Ben Feinberg School of Medicine and the Northwestern for Residency. And now very happy to be out here in Washington, D.C. Well, Ethan and Austin, welcome to Cardiners, and what a pleasure it is to be here with two future critical care cardiologists. Ethan, congratulations for matching into the Critical Care Fellowship at the NIH. Dr. Nathan Seen is a phenomenal program director and personally has been a wonderful resource as we had embarked on U.S. Cardiology Review, given his position as editor-in-chief of ATS Scholar, which has just been a really terrific role model for a medical education journal. So with that, again, it is so much fun to be here with you. Where are we going to be hanging out as we discuss this case? So we're going to be spending time today in the lovely city of Washington, D.C. I grew up as a West Coaster. I grew up in the city of San Francisco, right next to the Presidio. So I never thought ever in my life that I ended up on the East Coast, but feel very lucky to be here in D.C. It's really a great place to train, both clinically being a very busy clinical site, but you know, with having so many international patients and learning a lot about the different cultures in D.C., I'm a big foodie. My dad is actually a bartender out in San Francisco. So the food scene speaks to me very strongly in DC in ways that I thought it wouldn't at all. So I feel, like I said, very lucky to be in this city. I would echo that. Coming from Chicago, we have a plethora of really fantastic restaurants, really a world-class food city. I was worried a little bit coming here to DC that I might be missing that, but DC has an excellent, really excellent restaurant and bar tableau to choose from. And it's really been fun exploring the city. Yeah, as someone who used to live in Baltimore, D.C. was always a fun day or weekend trip away. It's a terrific place and, again, happy to be here. So tell us about your case. Okay, glad to start. So our patient today is a 55-year-old male with a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy who presented to his outpatient cardiologist with several weeks of worsening exercise tolerance, lower extremity edema, and for generally, quote, feeling cold. So initially, we're looking at potentially a, a typical example of a heart failure decompensation in a patient with no non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. I think let's review a little bit more information about his course and history, see how this case varies from a more standard presentation. Definitely. So 
our patient presented to his outpatient cardiologist, mostly because he was having difficulty riding his bike for long distances. He's usually an avid bike rider, which we'll talk about below, along with leg swelling, which was particularly distressing to him. He's had similar episodes of this leg swelling in the past, but feels as if something's off with this current episode. He personally says he was first diagnosed with what he calls heart issues in 2015. But besides the medications he was prescribed to him by his cardiologist, his regular weight loss, which we'll talk about below, and his exercise routine, he actually thought his overall health had been improving over the intervening years. In terms of the medications he's on, he says he's on them to help, to quote him, rebuild his heart function, quote, and water pills to help with his some fluid retention. But over the last several weeks, feels as if they're not working as well as they usually do. Generally denies any fever, shortness of breath, chest pain, orthopnea, palpitations, or other concerns but does notably state that his toes feel colder than they normally do. It's a curious situation, especially with a previously well-compensated patient now having an acute decline in his functional status when compared to the overall relatively long chronicity of his disease all the way back to 2015. I'm interested in what occurred in prior exacerbations and about what has been done as a prior outpatient workup for him. There's obviously a lot of different ways we'd start teasing about this case. But tell me the rest about his history and the medications he's using before we jump too far. In more detail now, our patient's history really began roughly six to seven years prior to current presentation with a diagnosis of an idiopathic non-ischemic cardiomyopathy with an ejection fraction of 40 to 45% with progressive heart failure symptoms, which was then complicated by complete heart block necessitating dual chamber permanent pacemaker placement two years after initial presentation. So again, to frame us about three to four years before our current presentation. His nearly nuclear stress test and echocardiograms were stable in the intervening period without evidence of inducible ischemia, and his ejection fraction of 45% was maintained for many years as an outpatient. As points to the patient, he's actually been able to engage in a lot of positive lifestyle changes. He intentionally lost about 70 pounds about four years after his diagnosis, and up until his presentation here, reported excellent exercise tolerance. He would bike about 100 miles a week. However, though, about two years before presentation, his course changed. He noticed new ascites, hitting edema, and other signs of volume overload. His nuclear stress test done at that time revealed a newly reduced ejection fraction to 35%, again down from 45 just a couple years previously. Initially, he was managed with aggressive diuresis with an improvement in symptoms, but then was actually offered an upgrade to CRTD given his persistently reduced systolic function, despite GDMT optimization. After implantation, and despite good outpatient GDMT, he remained symptomatic and would actually notice worsening shortness of breath walking between his garage where his car was parked and his office. Socially, he had minimal alcohol use, did not use any illicit substances or smoke tobacco. He was single and not sexually active for many years, lives alone with no obvious work or home exposures, and then works remotely for a software company and eats a vegan and dairy-free diet. So big picture, I'm hearing that we have a patient who has previously stable well-competent disease, subacute decline in his ejection fraction and maybe some new symptoms, but is now in our outpatient clinic, progressive symptoms, evidence of volume overload. I imagine that this is a patient you're wondering if you can manage this as an outpatient versus if this requires a patient admission. Yes. So we will get to his physical exam in a little bit, but I think based off what we heard and even from what we saw from the cardiologist's office, it seems like he definitely needed a little bit more support than we can offer to outpatient. So at this point, if you're going to stage this, this patient's heart failure and his symptoms, thinking of our typical NYJ and ACCHA classifications, where would you put him and how would you set his case in that framework based on his current symptoms? Sure. So as most of my co-residents know, I'm a stickler for language. 
The one thing I'll admit here, the word endorses does not mean what you think it does. Uh, that's the one I wouldn't frame there, but I'm happy to review the, just briefly the ACC and um, NYJ hard classifications here. So, you know, when I'm talking about stage A through D disease, we're really just briefly saying stage A, patients at risk, stage B, patients without current or previous symptoms of heart failure, but do have underlying structural heart disease, increased filling pressures, et cetera. Stage C, I would stage patients with current or previous symptoms of heart failure. And stage D here, these are patients with heart failure symptoms that interfere with daily life functions or lead to hospitalization. So going down that rabbit hole, I would say our patient really is in stage D heart failure at this point. Again, this is without all additional information, but just as I'm reading the case, this is what I say. In terms of functional class, we talk about class one being no limitation of physical activity. Class two is a slight limitation, but is otherwise comfortable at rest. Class three is a market limitation. Again, these are all subjective and based on a lot of different providers experiencing a lot of symptoms with these patients. And then stage four would be some heart failure symptoms at rest. So any physical activity he's not able to complete. Obviously, I wasn't able to speak to the patient at this point, but I'd say he's somewhere between maybe this class three to class four stages here. So I'll turn the question back on you then, Austin. So when you see a patient in your fellow clinic for evaluation of either a new or existing heart failure diagnosis, how do you usually think through establishing a cause or an etiology of their cardiomyopathy? Absolutely. Distinguishing ischemic from non-ischemic cardiomyopathy is really going to be the first key decision point. It's going to change how you manage the patient, change how you uh, proceed down the diagnostic pathway. So establishing that right up front is going to be critical. Oftentimes, we see patients that have had extensive prior workup before they come to see us in clinic, but there's also times where we have patients that have very little uh, minimal workup, or this is really the first time they're being evaluated for a heart failure diagnosis. So that's really the considering an ischemic or coronary evaluation is almost always indicated. Once we're convinced we're dealing with a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, which is really the focus of what we're discussing today, we also have to be thoughtful about approach to a workup. We want to understand risk factors and exposures, chronicity of any symptoms, family history, all key things to focus on in your initial uh, interview of the patient. Those things get us part of the way there. And then we add onto that focused testing, often laboratory testing, potentially advanced cardiac imaging, sometimes even genetic testing. So if you're establishing a framework, I would say under non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, you have your primary cardiomyopathies and your secondary cardiomyopathies. Under primary cardiomyopathies, you have acquired, mixed, or genetic primary cardiomyopathies. Under your secondary cardiomyopathies, you have cardiomyopathy occurring as the result of other illness or systemic disease. Certainly listing those in full is, is potentially a little bit past the goal of what we're trying to do here today, but that's the framework that I start to think about is where to group patients in each of those buckets. That's a really great framework, Austin. And I agree. I think the first really branch point is this ischemic or non-ischemic. Within the non-ischemic bucket, the most important epidemiologically, the most common causes will probably be hypertension-related cardiomyopathy, valvular heart disease-related cardiomyopathy, which are like load-dependent conditions. Idiopathic is an important one, and probably many of these patients have some sort of genetic underpinning. Arrhythmic cardiomyopathy or cardiomyopathy that has an electrical ideology is an important one that can be tachycardia-induced, AFib, PVC-mediated, or pacemaker-mediated. And then within the myocardial bucket, I think toxic, inflammatory, metabolic, infiltrative, stress, and genetic. But going to the electrical causes of cardiomyopathy, this patient initially presented with heart failure and complete heart block and got a dual-chamber pacemaker. So I would be curious, specific to his case, he has a dual-chamber pacemaker. So if he is being ventricularly paced, it's RV pacing, and he already had low ejection fraction to begin with when he had the pacemaker implanted. So 
I would be curious in terms of like what his RB pacing burden would be in terms of evaluating his current compensation. Absolutely. Initially, I have to presume, although I don't have the data in front of me, I have to presume that he was close to 100% RB paced. He had a dual chamber system implanted a few years after his initial diagnosis, once he was found to be a complete heart block, and had that for a few years before being upgraded to a CRTD device when his, his ejection fraction declined. Given that he was in diagnosed complete heart block, presumably he was paying 100% RB paced. And certainly your point is well taken that can contribute to uh, a pacemaker mediate cardiomyopathy, the sort of non-physiologic RV pacing. I think that noting in this patient the history of syncope specifically in this complete heart block is actually a really important pickup for people thinking about patients that present in this way. It's very atypical to have syncope and complete heart block in otherwise young, well-compensated patients. When you're evaluating a heart failure patient specifically, you want to look at cardiac versus non-cardiac cause of syncope. Certainly non-cardiac cause of syncope can occur even in patients with cardiac disease. Ethan, I'll, I'll ask you, when you're evaluating a patient with syncope in the outpatient setting, coming from the perspective of a wise and senior medicine resident, how do you think through that process? So this is a topic I usually like to talk to my medical students and some of my interns about because a lot of times we think of syncope very broadly, but really only about 15% of the time do we actually understand syncope as being cardiac in nature. So I think of it into three big buckets. I think of patients that have structural issues leading to syncope, electrical issues, or then structural issues that lead into electrical issues. So, you know, it's the basic physiology and pathophysiology is a little bit beyond the scope of what we're going to get to here. But essentially, as we know, that when the heart fails to generate an adequate cardiac output, the brain is inadequately perfused and temporarily is unable to support consciousness. So then we lead to this syncopal event. Electrical makes a little bit of sense. Bradyarrhythmia is essentially just great is the heart is beating too slow to generate enough forward flow. Then that leads to the syncopal event. Tachyarrhythmias essentially can force the heart to pump so fast that you lack a diastolic phase or filling phase. So you have ineffective LV filling and then reduce cardiac output from that. Mechanical gets a little bit challenging just because sometimes these patients are very complicated when we see them. So a lot of them, it requires advanced cardiac imaging if you're concerned, but something like a chronic obstruction to afford blood flow, so extreme hypertension, aortic stenosis, things like that can lead to an increase in ventricular size and pressure. This then leads to myocyte irritability, which can induce arrhythmias from that. Then you can essentially going through the pathway here, this increase in pressure stimulates mechanical receptors, induces a vagal response, and then secondary hypertension bradycardia leading to the event. There are other obstructive pathologies, things like aortic stenosis, cardiac tumors, tamponade, all follow the same kind of pathway. The same kind of goes, again, with myocardial infarction and ischemia as well, as infarction and ischemic tissue has impaired contractility. So you lead to similar structural causes leading to electrical issues. It's a very complex topic, so I won't go into further detail here. But the biggest thing is to really remember that while it only is 15% of patients that present with cardiac syncope for syncopal events, it's important to not just write it off as something benign, especially, you know, in our patient, he had, I presumably had some syncopal episodes before diagnosis, but would we have been able to catch something sooner if that had been screening? It's a good question. So I will throw it back to you, Austin, about this, about any other comments or Dr. Goyle, if you have any questions or things to add. Absolutely. Reviewing this patient's history, he did have syncope that led up to his diagnosis of complete heart block. I think you're exactly correct in terms of breaking it down pathophysiologically what's happening inside the heart when we're thinking about cardiac syncope. 
to cause insufficient cardiac output to maintain consciousness. When we're thinking about electrical issues, you have to remember exactly like you said that the electrical conduction system is part of the cardiac structure. Things that cause myopathy, things that cause scar tissue or remodeling, adverse remodeling of the heart muscle can also affect the conduction system. And so those things do go part and parcel and they are closely linked. For this patient, he is diagnosed with third degree AV block, complete heart block at a relatively young age requiring a pacemaker. What causes of third degree heart block specifically do you think of when you see that in this patient population that doesn't have a, a known pre-existing good reason to, to suddenly develop third degree AV block? Sure. So this is something we see in the cardiac ICU all the time. It's always a little bit of a diagnostic process, but in this younger patient without this known advanced age and both other known comorbidities, one of our most common causes is just conduction system disease that we see as patients age, but this is less likely in here. My biggest suspicion here, unless it was a zyotrogenic that he had been overdosing on his home beta blocker, which I highly doubt, or had recently undergone cardiac surgery we were unaware of, my biggest suspicion here is that this is some sort of infiltrative process. Or because my biggest suspicion, once you have, if you imagine the heart electrical conduction system going down to the myocardium there, it's thinks I think of it in very basic terms that pathophysiology is much more complex. But you think about the, are those electrical signals having trouble getting down through that kind of infiltrated myocardium there. So I worry about things like sarcoidosis, amyloidosis, malignancy, hemochromatosis, among other things. So in this gentleman here, I worry highly about that, or obviously things like a viral myocarditis, Lyme carditis, et cetera. But those are kind of in a younger gentleman what I would reach to typically in, with this characterization of symptoms. I absolutely agree. I think that's a correct listing of the differential there in terms of an infiltrative or inflammatory process, potentially leading your differential there to have a patient with both cardiomyopathy, decreased ejection fraction and contractility, but to also have conduction system disease. Certainly, like you said, in older patients, conduction system disease can be isolated, but in a 49-year-old uh, who's otherwise healthy, that's a big red flag right there that we need to be investigating the cause of this cardiomyopathy as closely as we can. Getting back to our specific patient and, and progressing his case a little bit here, once he's in outpatient clinic and getting admitted, how does he look? When we first saw him, he was on the advanced heart failure service, so a cardiac IMC, so keep that in mind generally. His heart rate was 56. Again, notable that he has that CRTD in place. His blood pressure was 80 over 56. Satting 100% on room air was afebrile and non-tachypnic, breathing at a rate of around 15 per minute. I think you're exactly right to point out the bradycardia. Um, you know, he is presumably tracking a sinus rate at that point for heart rate of 56. You do wonder if a higher heart rate would benefit this patient with low blood pressure and potentially some concerning findings for a low output state, but I'll let you finish the physical exam before we get into that. Of course. For time's sake, I'll focus on the pertinent positives. Overall, he was well appearing. He was thin, but in no acute distress, which is notable here. His neck exam, he did have JVD elevated to about one centimeter below the mandible. So a little bit seems to be volume up, at least based on that subjective assessment there. His lungs were clear to auscultation bilaterally at the upper portions. However, did note rails up to the mid-back bilaterally. His cardiac exam did note a 2 out of 6 diastolic murmur at the axilla, but otherwise did have distal pulses that were strong and equal in all limbs and seemed to have somewhat brisk capillary refill. Otherwise, the biggest notable thing is lower extremities were um, significant for a 2-plus pitting edema as well as appearing cold and mottled. But otherwise, he was alert and oriented times 3 with neurologic exam intact. 
So I think Austin, you could probably see why we were a little worried about him when we first saw him on the IMC here. Absolutely. I, I think you focused on the right aspects of the exam there for this patient with heart failure decompensation. We're trying to assess exactly where they are on the spectrum of decompensation. I think focusing on his heart rate, the poor capillary refill, his cool extremities, as well as the JVD and edema was exactly the right things to focus on. When we're assessing these patients from a cardiac and a cardiac critical care perspective, we tend to lump them into boxes along with sort of dry versus wet cool versus warm spectrum, where would you place this patient? So overall, given his physical exam, his cool modeled extremities, his elevated JVD, and his presence of peripheral edema, I'd really classify him as cool and wet. And I think our next steps would probably be to obtain lab and imaging data to round out this initial assessment. Yeah. Along that spectrum, grouping patients in those four boxes, where we see the, the highest increase in morbidity and mortality is the patients on the cool side, obviously. Warm versus wet, that's something we have more levers to press on. We have options for that. So wet doesn't necessarily scare me, but cool does. Cool and wet was associated with a very high rate of morbidity and mortality. And so identifying these patients early starts with physical exam, but certainly latching and important for this assessment as well. All right. So let me go ahead and give you some of his initial labs then. Our initial labs, really significant for a sodium, a hyponatremia of 131 a bicarb of 17, and a creatinine of 1.09, I'd say, are the pertinent labs here. In terms of his other, his CBC here, we do not see a leukocytosis. We do not see any sort of anemia, and otherwise, he has a normal platelet count. Other lab, pertinent labs, his NTBNP here is 1749. His T-billy is a bit elevated at 1.8 with a direct bilirubin of 0.99. Otherwise, his AST and ALT are within normal limits. His TSH was elevated at 7.45, but he did have a normal free T4. His initial high sensitivity troponin was 388, which then remained flat for multiple lab values afterwards. Of note, we did not have a lactate on him initially, which would, looking back, would have been a very appropriate first test, and we were waiting on that as he was being evaluated by the cardiac ICU. Great, Ethan. Thank you for going over that. We have plenty of data, at least to start making our initial impressions. Tell me, what is your level of concern? How do you plan to triage this patient? And along the way, do we have a chest x-ray and EKG to help further understand what's going on? All right. So my first plan here with patients like this is to think about what can we do hourly, hour to hour versus long term. So in the hour to hour moment, it's important to determine whether our patient is mentating appropriately. Our patient here is mentating appropriately, so alert and oriented times three and at his functional baseline. But as the suspicion rises and we get more worried about a cardiogenic shock picture, we want to keep monitoring that as well as his urine output. And that is a significant marker there saying is this patient in early stages of hypoperfusing his kidneys. In the long-term plan, things like LFTs and creatinine, where you expect to rise over the next hours to days. But again, those are not as helpful in the acute setting as really just laying eyes on the patient, mentation, physical exam, as we've said above. I think you make an excellent point about the utility of serial assessment of these patients. It's not just a snapshot. You have to keep monitoring their physical exam, their mental status, their urine output. Really, Changes hour to hour can make a big difference in understanding the trajectory for these patients and getting the appropriate level of care in a timely fashion. What other types of testing are you thinking about doing at this point as you're working on deciding how to triage this patient? So initial triage here, I would want a chest x-ray and an ECG. Our chest x-ray here that we had for this patient was of good quality and technique, otherwise did not show any acute cardiopulmonary abnormality. Things I'd be looking for in these patients would be cardiomegaly, cephalization concerning for volume overload or any other alveolar infiltrate. 
among other things. Of note, he did have that CRTD in place, which did appear to be in the correct position. Austin, I think you have the ECG in front of you. Do you mind giving me an assist on this read? Absolutely. I will say this patient who has peripheral edema, somewhat surprising to not see any pulmonary edema, although not outside the realm of possibility. But uh, I think I'll make a plug here for the utility of bedside ultrasound and POCUS and the assessment of these patients. Certainly a high quality echo assessment is important in understanding the contractility, identifying any new severe valvular disease, looking for any signs of pericardial effusion or tamponade. But there's also utility for, for point of care ultrasound to look at the lung fields, to do a rapid abdominal assessment. When you have a somewhat undifferentiated patient, your worried is in shock. I think that adds a lot to your assessment. The sensitivity for pulmonary edema in some patients can actually be higher by point of care ultrasound than by chest X-ray. Certainly you have to distinguish, you, know, you can't just put the probe on in, in one rib space and call it a day. You really do have to look through the different lung fields, but point of care pulmonary ultrasound may very well have a role to play here as well. Yes. So EKG, as expected, we see an AV dual pace rhythm. There are occasional PVCs as well. All right. Excellent. Thanks for reviewing that. I guess I'll just take the moment then to just summarize where we are to go into our kind of our bigger depth here. Overall, my summary assessment is this is a 55-year-old male with an unknown cause of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, third-degree AV block status post pacemaker with CRTD upgrade, previously well-compensated and asymptomatic, who now presents with subacute to acute decline in exercise tolerance despite his CRTD upgrade and reasonable outpatient GDMT, now currently with peripheral edema and cool extremities concerning for heart failure decompensation and potentially a low output state. So at this point, what is your differential for the acute decompensation? So my biggest suspicion here, given as we talked about with third degree heart block, my biggest suspicion is that there's an infiltrative process here. So something like cardiac sarcoidosis, cardiac amyloidosis, a viral or autoimmune myocarditis, or then something like hemochromatosis are the kind of classic things I would think of. Austin, what other things am I missing here in my differential? So sticking with the objective data and this patient who we have some significant concern about, I think rapidly getting an ultrasound of the heart is going to be key here. So bring the machine to bedside. I'll get some pictures. Looking at the ultrasound pictures, we see a couple of things right off the bat. We see biventricular dilation, LVs mildly dilated, the RV is moderately dilated. We also see severe biventricular dysfunction. The LV ejection fraction is severely reduced. The EF is 20 to 25%. The RV systolic function is also moderately severely reduced. And we see severe biatrial dilation. Looking at the myocardium itself, the LV walls, we see some really interesting findings there. The basal, inferior, and infraceptal walls are aneurysmal. There's focal brightness and thinning of the septum. And you also see other areas that have nearly preserved contractility with the interlateral wall. So really sort of you get the sense of patchiness to whatever myocardial process is happening with global severe hypokinesis and dysfunction. Looking at the valves, we also see what appears to be some functional mitral regurgitation with, with a severe amount of mitral regurgitation. And then the tricuspid annulus is also dilated, result in their severe tricuspid regurgitation. So my initial thoughts of seeing this echo is that we have some chronicity to the disease with the dilation of both chambers. We see this, these sort of patchy or regional abnormalities within the LV myocardium with both concentric LVH as well as aneurysmal and thin portions, which those aneurysmal thin portions suggest significant scarring. And it's not involving the entire myocardium. And then certainly the, the valvular disease is going to 
complicated management of this patient in the acute setting. When I see an echo like this, I'm starting to wonder about the mechanism of the underlying cardiomyopathy, assuming sarcoidosis or arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy are things that come to mind based on looking at the echo and looking at that neural myocardium here. So at this point, Ethan, we have some objective data, we have our labs, we have a patient in front of us who we're worried about. What's the next step in, in management here? So based on everything you've told me, Austin, what I'm getting here is that we have a very sick patient in front of us. And what I'm really worried about is what's the underlying etiology of what are we missing here? What can we do to opt to help us figure out what's going on and get this man stabilized? My biggest kind of concern here is his hemodynamic parameters. But we can't just think about the hemodynamic parameters here. We also have to think about, is there some sort of underlying etiology that we are missing? So his mild troponin elevation gives me some pause thinking, are we missing an underlying ischemic injury here on a prior non-ischemic cardiomyopathy? And then the other kind of big question, what we've characterized him as having this third degree heart block, the CRTD, these kind of aneurysmal findings on echocardiogram. My worry is that there's some other intramyocardial process ongoing. So my suspicion here was that I would like to do a left heart catheterization. I think we need to do that to rule out an ischemic insult here. I'd also like to do a right heart catheterization. I think this will help us guide and direct our own therapies. It's how we can best serve patients in the cardiac ICU setting. But also while we're there, also get an endomyocardial biopsy. Obviously, this is not a low-risk procedure, but given all of his findings, his electrical disturbances, I think we would not be doing him justice as a patient if we did not get an endomyocardial biopsy kind of with rapidity. I think that's exactly right. I think that we have to do multiple things simultaneously here. We have to manage a, an acutely sick um, patient with early signs of cardiogenic shock no longer sky classification, a, a sky stage B, maybe moving into sky C, cardiogenic shock patient. We also have certain diagnoses we can't miss. We have a troponin elevation. That troponin level is flat, which is typically reassuring against ACS, but I would still say that ACS or active ischemia is, is absolutely something that we can't miss in this patient who's decompensating. And to your point, we also have, in addition to the benefit we get for a left heart catheterization with the coronaries, the right heart catheterization to understand his acute hemodynamics so we can best support him. We also have a, a larger question about his underlying cardiomyopathy and the mechanism of that, as well as certain acute etiologies cardiomyopathy, where a right heart cath with biopsy has a lot of information to add both for his prior cardiomyopathy, but potentially also for what's happening in the last days to weeks when he's acutely decompensated. Can you walk us through the bindings from the tests? Of course. So we'll come back to the biopsy in a bit, but as obviously this will take some time as, and our patient is decompensating in front of us. But our left heart catheterization did show no coronary artery disease, so his coronaries did not have any evidence of any disease. His right heart catheterization, this was done while his systemic blood pressure was 90 over 60, and note this was not on any onotropy. His right atrial pressure was 9, his right ventricular pressure was 16 over 5, his PA pressures here are 15 over 5, his wedge pressure here is 7, and so his cardiac output via thermodilution was 3.45 liters per minute and via FIC was 2.99. His PA sat was 55% and this was on 95%. And SAO2 was 95%. Okay, so there are a few things that stand out to me about this right heart catheterization. His wedge pressure is seven, which is a bit lower than I would have expected. So I imagine he was probably diuresed quite well. But the important thing here is to note that his right atrial pressure here is actually greater than his wedge pressure. So this is giving me the sign that he has pretty significant 
right ventricular disease, particularly with this kind of aligns with the septal flattening that Austin, you mentioned earlier. So again, this is now giving kind of an overall global biventricular dysfunction picture. The other things to note here, the other calculations that we look at, things like his pulmonary arterial pulsatility index is actually one here. His systemic vascular resistance here is right around 1500 with that blood pressure of 90 over 64. And his cardiac power output was 0.55. So Austin, with all these kind of comments that I've made, what are you worried about here? How are you thinking about moving on slash managing this patient in the coming minutes to hours? Yeah, so this is a patient we've demonstrated is encouraging shock. We have a low output state with a cardiac index of 1.6 to 1.8 with the thick and the dilution. We have a CPO of 0.55. So this is a patient that needs rescuing from, from the cycle of biventricular dysfunction going into a progressive shock state. The levers we have to push on in this case, as you brought up, the wedge pressure is actually low, suggesting he may augment his cardiac output with a small amount of fluid. Additionally, the systemic blood pressure of 90 over 64 is too high for this patient based on his LV contractility. With an SVR of 1500, he benefits from affluent reduction to also augment his stroke volume and therefore cardiac output. So we have a couple of things we can do here, but in the big picture, we need to be starting to think about whether or not this patient would benefit from mechanical circulatory support. And anytime you're thinking there, you also have to have a sense of What's your end game, right? Is this a patient who, if you do end up placing them on dual inotropes or mechanical circulatory support, how do you move forward? Is this a patient who's a candidate for a transplant? Is this a patient who's a candidate for a durable uh, LVAT? So a lot of questions we have in the moment, but right now we have to treat this patient and, and manage him effectively. So I want to take a moment to talk about his cardiogenic shock state and where he falls on spectrum. We mentioned the sky classification, uh, which I think is a really important framework to have for these patients moving from sky A, which is the at-risk category, patients with risk factors for developing cardiogenic shock, sky B, or beginning cardiogenic shock, which is a diagnosis when we start to see some hemodynamic instability, tachycardia, or hypotension that is potentially consistent with shock without hypoperfusion. Sky stage C, or classic cardiogenic shock, where we have hypoperfusion and organ dysfunction, and they need some form of pharmacologic or mechanical support, such as inotropes or MCS, uh, often presenting with hypotension. Sky D being a deteriorating shock state, patients who are doing worse or declining despite those initial interventions. And Sky E are patients in extremis who will have impending or actual circulatory collapse, requiring something like ECMO or actively in CTR. So as I think through the sky classification, now that we have this right heart cath data, I think we have a patient who's between stages B and C. We don't have definitive evidence of end-organ hypoperfusion, although at this point, like we talked about, paying triple dentures, mental status, and urine output is going to be key. We do have cool extremities, which is concerning for end-organ hypoperfusion. A patient who's starting to clamp down with an elevated SVR. Like this is a patient that we need to start those interventions we talked about, optimize the volume status, optimize the afterload probably start some inotropic support. Let's talk about the biopsy results and, and what that shows. All right. So I'll have the pleasure of going through our biopsy results here. Our histopathology demonstrated multinucleated giant cells on a background of chronic inflammatory cells and myocardial fibrosis. This is overall consistent after review with multiple pathologists at different institutions consistent with giant cell myocarditis as our unifying diagnosis here, at least in the moment. 
we'll talk about the management presentation and everything of giant cell myocarditis, but I think this does really help me, at least as a learner, understand the mechanisms and why he's acutely decompetated on a background of chronic LV dysfunction. But it does raise additional questions. Austin, I'll hand it over to you to discuss further the management and presentation of giant cell myocarditis. Absolutely. Giant cell myocarditis is a rare, typically rapidly progressive cause of heart failure, and it's thought to be due to T-cell lymphocyte-mediated myocardial inflammation. It's associated often on presentation with ventricular tachycardia, high-grade AV block, and significant hemodynamic instability. It often occurs in young or middle-aged patients with a mean age between 40 and 60, based on different disease registries. While giant cell myocarditis is a rare disease, a high index of suspicion is necessary when we see patients with rapidly progressing or fulminant heart failure, as making the diagnosis early is going to allow for identification of how uniquely high risk these patients are for decompensation, as well as early initiation of therapy directed at the underlying autoimmune process. Like we talked about with troponin, cardiac biomarkers and as well as imaging serve an adjunct role in diagnosis. Echo findings can be variable, you can have either normal or dilated LV cavity size, we can also see decreased EF presentation correlating with worse outcomes for these patients, specifically a shorter transplant pre-survival time, the lower the EF is. Troponin elevation levels can be elevated, but the case series show a lack of correlation between prognosis and troponin elevation in giant cell myocarditis. And importantly, in some cases, negative troponin values even can be seen, even in those patients later found to have giant cell myocarditis by biopsy. Advanced imaging is always practical, as we saw in our case. These patients are often hematically unstable. You're not going to have time or the ability to get this patient to a cardiac MRI. Although if you do, you can see findings typical of myocarditis. As the disease progresses, we worry about sustained or symptomatic VT and conduction diseases we talked about, refractory heart failure with a dilated LV phenotype. Many of these patients require mechanical circulatory support and eventually transplantation. We don't fully understand the cause of giant cell myocarditis. Histologically, there is infiltration of the myocardium by T lymphocytes and macrophages. And there's evidence of upregulation of IL-17 and TNF-alpha in patients with giant cell myocarditis. The mainstay of therapy is really cyclosporin-based combination immunosuppressive therapy, in addition to our usual guideline-directed medical therapy of, of any heart failure arrhythmias that arise. Typical regimens include cyclosporin and high-dose methylprednisolone, along with azathioprine or alentuzumab, which is an anti-CD52 monoclonal antibody. It's important to recognize that gisomarchitis can remit and relapse, sometimes many years after the initial diagnosis. So these patients should uniformly be followed by an advanced heart failure team and should continue on some immunosuppression, usually including at least a calcineurin inhibitor for at least two years after their initial diagnosis. Overall, I'd say that our understanding of the mechanism and management of gisomarchitis continues to evolve. High-grade evidence, such as a randomized controlled trial, is extremely difficult to get in the sick patient population in a rare disease. Therefore, enrolling these patients in shared multi-center registries when able is really essential to shrinking our knowledge gaps in this area. I think that this is a really fascinating case because we have a patient who has some underlying cardiomyopathy, quite possibly cardiac sarcoidosis, given the high-grade AV block early in his presentation and the sort of initial mild insult to his LVEF. But now with a new acute decompensation which appears to be a secondary disease process of giant cell myocarditis. I think what's a really interesting discussion point that this raises and what I'd like our experts to discuss is how you think about the spectrum along the lines of this autoimmune dysfunction that underlies both cardiac sarcoidosis as well as giant cell myocarditis. The question of, are these two ends of the same spectrum of the same disease? Or are these 
fundamentally different diseases that just share some common features on histology. Austin, thank you so much for that. Those teaching points there. I remember managing this case in the cardiac ICU and felt very overwhelmed throughout all of it. So you condensed it down to at least a very stable or at least straightforward way to manage these complicated patients. So after the right heart catheterization, a balloon pump was placed for afterload reduction and he was started on cyclosporin, mycophenolate, and pulsed with methylprednisolone. He then remained in the cardiac ICU for roughly 20 days before a matched transplant donor was found. He underwent successful transplant. To your point earlier, after his initial diagnosis, likely in the setting of his immunosuppression, he unfortunately developed HPV-reactivated squamous cell cancer of the tonsil. As part of staging, he underwent FTG-PET, which was noted to have hyalur uptake. Biopsy done of those hyalur lymph nodes revealed non-caseating granulomas, which then brings into the question, what was his true etiology of his cardiomyopathy initially versus this current etiology that we've diagnosed as giant cell? Wow, Ethan and Austin, congratulations for just a phenomenal discussion. And also the diagnosis and management of this patient in the hands of yourself and your colleagues at MedStar Georgetown. I think the key inflection point for this patient's care was the decision to get that endomyocardial biopsy, and which ended up making a diagnosis that was critically actionable in terms of not missing a very missable diagnosis of giant cell myocarditis with, and making the diagnosis impact of the care he received. When we in Cardiners did our myocarditis series, we said we have the Cardiners five principles of myocarditis is number one, to build a clinical suspicion. And again, that's just, I think, the most important step is because you have to have a low index of suspicion to consider giant cell myocarditis. Two is deciding to do the endomyocardial biopsy based on that clinical suspicion. Three is managing the acute cardiac injury, which in this patient's case was PA catheter-tailored hemodynamic therapies. Managing the chronic cardiac sequelae and then treating the myocarditis itself, right? And you just described over the course of this discussion how you tackled each one of those. And this is a kind of a challenging case because this patient already had something that this patient already came to you with chronic heart failure and complete heart block with an onset at a pretty young age. So I agree there may have been some either missed myocarditis in the past or sarcoidosis in the past, and now is coming to you in a more fulminant picture with a diagnosis of genital myocarditis. So I also look forward to hearing more about myocarditis from our faculty experts, but this discussion was fabulous. I learned so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to discuss this with the cardiac community. Really been a pleasure having this discussion, and hopefully we can continue to learn more about giant cell myocarditis and the spectrum that the disease can present with. And now for our expert discussion on this case, I'd like to bring on Dr. Richa Gupta. Dr. Gupta is an assistant professor of medicine at Georgetown University and part of the Advanced Heart Failure Transplant and Mechanical Circulatory Support Department at MedStar Washington Hospital Center. I first wanted to extend a congratulations to Dr. Frazier and Dr. Culver for doing an incredible job presenting a complicated and nuanced case of a patient with a history of chronic systolic heart failure and heart block who ultimately progressed to cardiogenic shock requiring heart transplantation for an inflammatory cardiomyopathy. The two have beautifully reviewed the differential of cardiomyopathy etiology in a patient like this and highlighted just how important it is to understand the etiology of the cardiomyopathy as this dictates both therapy and prognosis. This is a point that I hammer to all my trainees all the time that was drilled into me by my mentor, Dr. Lynn Stevenson, in fellowship. Dr. Frazier and Dr. Culver have also expertly reviewed the critical care management of a patient who presents fulminantly with myocarditis and the use of hemodynamic monitoring as well as subsequent medical management. 
We're so lucky here at MedStar to have the opportunity to work with such fabulous and passionate house staff like Ethan and Austin, who are so dedicated to the care of their patients, incredibly knowledgeable as demonstrated by their excellent review of this case, and also so much fun to work with on the wards. Now to delve into my comments about the case, I wanted to talk about three important discussion points to expand on our case presentation. One, the differential diagnosis in a patient with cardiomyopathy and complete heart block or arrhythmia. Two, the overlap between cardiac sarcoidosis and giant cell myocarditis or GCN and the controversy surrounding whether or not these are two processes representing opposite ends of the spectrum of a single inflammatory cardiomyopathy pathology versus two separate processes entirely. And then three, what the implications are of having an inflammatory cardiomyopathy etiology for the management and surveillance after advanced heart failure therapies, namely after LVAD or, as is the case for our patient, after transplant. This is a big question in the advanced heart failure world, specifically how do we manage these patients after LVAD or transplant and what do we understand about the possibility of recurrence? So the first point I will keep Relatively brief because Dr. Fraser and Dr. Culver pretty much hit this one on the nail in exploring the basic differential of a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. In a patient with progressive cardiomyopathy and evidence of complete heart block or ventricular arrhythmia, infiltrative or inflammatory cardiomyopathy certainly are part of the differential, including cardiac sarcoidosis, cell myocarditis, or other forms of myocarditis. In this case presentation, it was tissue or endomyocardial biopsy and later evidence of extra cardiac sarcoidosis that cinched the diagnosis of inflammatory cardiomyopathy. But what if this case was a little different and we had no tissue evidence of giant cells or non-taseating granulomas? I wanted to also highlight that genetic cardiomyopathies must also be part of the differential. There's a lot of overlap between inflammatory cardiomyopathy and genetic cardiomyopathies. Specifically, there are genetic cardiomyopathies that can actually present with acute LV myocardial injury associated with myocardial inflammation, which can initially be misdiagnosed as cardiac sarcoidosis or myocarditis. This has been reported, for instance, in arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, formerly known as ARVC or desmoplakin cardiomyopathy, where desmosomal DSV2 and PKP2 mutations can really mimic myocarditis and present with systolic dysfunction and a high incidence of ventricular arrhythmias along with troponin elevation and LGE noted on cardiac MRI. It's not clear whether the inflammation comes from transient myocardial injury in the heart or if the inflammation is directly due to desmosomal disruption. Remember, desmosomes structurally link myocyte cells. And this is described really nicely in a publication from 2020 in circulation by Eric Smith et al. in a multicenter study of 107 of these patients. Moreover, further studies of dilated cardiomyopathy or DCM patients have found specific DCM genes that are more likely to be associated with a higher degree of LGE on MRI, which can then dictate risk of sudden cardiac death. And these genes include DMD, DSP or desmoplakin, filament C, BAG3, Ramen, and cardiac myosin binding protein 3 or MYBPC3. Moving on to a second point, which is the controversy now that exists in the spectrum of giant cell myocarditis and cardiac sarcoidosis. The question of whether these are two separate disease entities or part of the same disease spectrum is a really interesting one. So let's compare and contrast what we know about the two. Both disease processes are autoimmune-related and mediated by T-lymphocytes, potentially triggered by infectious or non-infectious agents. Both have potential clinical manifestations of high-grade block, heart failure, and 
life-threatening ventricular arrhythmia, although this is felt to be much more aggressive in giant cell myocarditis. In histology, there are also resemblances. Myocardial granulomas are the hallmark of cardiac sarcoidosis, but the presence doesn't really exclude giant cell myocarditis. Multinucleated giant cells are the hallmark of GCM. However, both sarcoidosis and GCM can have multinuclear giant cells with necrosis, fibrosis, lymphocytes, macrophages, as well as eosinophils with maybe differences in the relative proportions of each inflammatory cell type. You can easily see here how the overlap in histologic features can make classification really confusing. Because of this intersection, there's no agreed consensus among cardiac pathologists as to the respective diagnostic criteria. I'm attaching to this episode a reproduced table from an editorial by David Burney et al. in the Journal of the American Heart Association that was published in 2021 that summarizes the histologic criteria for GCM and for cardiac sarcoidosis for listeners to review. These are criteria that were used to distinguish the two in two separate studies. One of these studies was a paper published in 2021 by Norton Swan et al. in Finland in the Journal of the American Heart Association. This was a comparison of 351 cardiac sarcoidosis and 28 giant cell myocarditis patients diagnosed by histopathologic assessment in patients from the 1980s onward. The study reviewed their clinical features, the presentation of these patients, as well as the natural history of each. And what they found was that in GCM, biomarkers including troponin and natriuretic peptides were often more strongly elevated. The LV more commonly had a poor ejection fraction and less dilation, suggestive of a more extensive and more acute myocardial injury compared with cardiac sarcoidosis. And then event-free survival was worse in giant cell myocarditis. However, the predictive power of giant cell myocarditis in predicting survival was much poorer once markers for LV dysfunction and myocardial injury were adjusted for. In other words, it was these indicators of more destructive LV injury that predicted poor outcomes rather than the inherent diagnosis of giant cell versus cardiac sarcoidosis. The authors of this paper suggest that there's an overlap between the two diseases, citing that prior studies have also identified giant cells on pathology in patients who had evidence of extracardiac sarcoidosis the authors also suggest that cardiac sarcoidosis and giant cell myocarditis may be closely related or severe phenotypes of a single disease where the giant cell is perhaps an aggressive form of an isolated cardiac sarcoidosis. They go on to suggest that because of this, the histopathologic diagnosis actually matters less than the markers of the LV dysfunction and myocardial injury when it comes to management and prognosis. All of these points were challenged in the editorial that I mentioned earlier by David Birdie et al. in response to this publication. So the authors of this editorial actually felt as though the data suggested that cardiac sarcoidosis and gisal myocarditis are two different and separate clinical entities. They state that GCM had much more acute onset and much shorter time from symptom onset to diagnosis compared with cardiac sarcoidosis, and that heart failure was the presenting manifestation more frequently in giant cell patients in 50% of giant cell patients versus 15% of cardiac sarcoidosis patients. Cardiac troponin was also more frequently elevated in GCM, and the prognosis overall was much worse for GCM. So because the outcomes are so vastly different between the two groups, the authors of the editorial felt that GCM and cardiac sarcoidosis really should be treated as truly distinct entities, countering the conclusion made by the Norton Swan et al. study. They note that it's important to make this distinction because the two disease processes need different urgency and different intensity of immunosuppression, with greater urgency and intensity, of course, warranted for GCM. 
They also suggest that it's possible that the histopathologic features in GCM cases were misread as GCM, and more of these perhaps were actually truly cardiac sarcoidosis, which may have ultimately blurred their distinction in the study. In fact, on separate overreading of all available histologic material by the two cardiac pathologists, 62% of cases of GCM were reclassified as cardiac sarcoidosis based on identifying typical sarcoid granulomas that had been misread or overlooked or found in subsequent pathology specimens. The authors of the editorial finally bring up the point that sarcoidosis by definition is a systemic disease. And this is kind of incongruous with a disease process like giant cell myocarditis that is only known to affect a single organ, the heart. They question the idea that giant cell myocarditis is a subtype of isolated cardiac sarcoidosis, particularly in light of the fact that frequently subclinical evidence of extracardiac sarcoidosis can be found in other organs on, say, FDG PET imaging if one just looks for it. Remember, FDG PET is considered the best clinical tool to assess for cardiac and extracardiac inflammation in the cardiac sarcoidosis literature. This last point brings us back to our patient because this is exactly his situation. He had a pre-existing inflammatory cardiomyopathy that progressed to stage D heart failure and whom histology confirmed presence of multinucleated giant cells and so was initially labeled as giant cell myocarditis based on pathology pre-transplant. Fast forward to the post-transplant timeframe and fascinatingly, the patient undergoes FDG PET scan for staging of squamous cell cancer of the tonsil. He's found to have FDG-avid mediastinal lymph nodes, then undergoes biopsy of those lymph nodes that's consistent with subclinical extracardiac sarcoidosis with non-caseating granulomas. So given biopsy-proven extracardiac sarcoid, this to me reclassifies the patient as having cardiac sarcoidosis rather than giant cell myocarditis. That is, if we treat the two pathologies as distinct entities and not divergent phenotypes of the same inflammatory disease process. So finally, the last point I wanted to touch on was the question of how we manage patients with inflammatory cardiomyopathy or with cardiac sarcoidosis after advanced heart failure therapies. How do we manage a patient like this after transplant where there's risk of recurrent inflammation in the transplanted heart? And the same question can be asked for how we manage inflammatory cardiomyopathy after LVAD therapy. And this is a question that really plagues the advanced heart failure clinician. It's one that certainly plagues our team. It hasn't really been studied, and we really don't know what to do here. We do know that long-term outcomes after heart transplant in cardiac sarcoidosis are similar to those with other non-ischemic cardiomyopathies. We also know durable mechanical circulatory support, or LZAD therapy, can be used as a bridge to transplant or as lifelong therapy with great outcomes comparable to those with idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy. Still, there's risk of recurrent sarcoidosis in the transplanted heart or in the native heart post-LZAD. And there are case reports of biopsy-proven recurrent sarcoidosis that have been published after heart transplant. Moreover, extracardiac sarcoid disease may still be present after these advanced heart failure surgical therapies and may need to be investigated and screened for. So while FDG-PET and cardiac MRI can be used after heart transplant and FDG-PET after LZAD, the best surveillance strategy for cardiac sarcoidosis patients after these surgical advanced heart failure therapies remains undefined. We really don't understand the utility or the extent to which these studies might inform management decisions and, and immunosuppressive strategies. In our patient, FDG PET surveillance post-transplant really cinched the diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis as the likely initial etiology of heart failure 
and allowed us to diagnose the extracardiac presence of sarcoidosis, which is important because these patients might require additional surveillance and possibly treatment of their systemic or extracardiac sarcoid. In other situations, surveillance to assess for recurrence might be useful if there's clinical worsening from a cardiac standpoint, for instance, worsening heart failure or arrhythmia in the absence of cardiac allograft vasculopathy or rejection in a heart transplant patient, or worsening RV failure or arrhythmia after LVAD therapy. In each case, one has to weigh the effect of immunosuppression to treat the sarcoidosis against the risks of immunosuppression side effects like infection, malignancy, and other issues. So here at MedStar, we've identified 48 patients with cardiac sarcoidosis who underwent advanced heart failure therapies, 29 who underwent LVAD only, 11 who underwent LVAD followed by transplant, and 9 who underwent heart transplantation alone. And we reviewed our institutional practice in terms of screening and FDG-PET, cardiac MRI, and biopsy foundings. We found no definitive evidence of recurrent sarcoidosis in the transplanted heart after heart transplant, interestingly, by tissue biopsy in our cohort. We also found that FDG-PET was useful to assess for the presence of extracardiac disease, but that after transplant, there was significant discordance in findings from PET scan to PET scan, as well as between PET scan and cardiac MRI, which kind of limits the utility of these imaging studies. You know, how do we interpret studies with such variability? After both transplant and VAD, immunosuppression was often driven by competing clinical factors like infection or immunosuppression side effects rather than imaging findings. Additionally, we don't really understand the expected FDG-PET or cardiac MRI surveillance findings after VAN and transplant, particularly in the context of altered myocardial energetics after heart transplant or after LVAD, or in the context of processes like rejection, cardiac allograft vasculopathy, or ischemic reperfusion injury after an operation that might affect the allograft after heart transplant and thus influence the FDG-PET or cardiac MRI findings. So as you can see, the use of imaging surveillance for cardiac sarcoidosis patients after heart transplant or LVAD therapy is challenging for these reasons, but might be helpful for sarcoidosis complication monitoring, as was demonstrated in this case, where we found evidence of extracardiac sarcoid for dictating immunosuppression changes or to track prior imaging abnormalities on an individualized basis. Really, what we need is pr prospective studies to be done in this area to really inform best practices. I'll end my comments here with a huge thank you to Dr. Amit Goyle, Dr. Dan Ambider, and the whole CardioNerds team and platform for allowing us to present a fascinating case that I certainly learned a lot from, and hopefully our listeners have as well. Congratulations again to Dr. Ethan Frazier and Dr. Austin Culver on an expert presentation that I hope will inspire more investigation on inflammatory cardiomyopathy and on how we prognosticate, treat, and manage this condition both before and after advanced heart failure therapies. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for tuning in to another Cardio Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Pacey Wettstein. I am an intern in the Cardio Nerds Academy, House Jones, and an MS1 at LeeCom Seton Hill. I invite you to check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All Cardio Nerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed 
solely by cardio nerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now it's time to make like an S2 and split. Boop. Boop.